Joining me today is a trial lawyer focusing on civil, criminal, and constitutional law, and according to his Twitter bio, he's America's most successful political gambler. Robert Barnes, welcome to the Rubin Report. Happy to be here. I am glad to have you here because you, sir, are smack dab in the middle of a million things that I'm thinking about all the time. So I'm glad we're doing this before we do anything mm -hmm. related to civil, criminal, constitutional, or any other kind of law. Political gambler. What are, what are we talking about there? I know what we're talking about, but tell the people. Sure, I started doing it when I was real young. So the, I used to bet friends and other people with elections and then started doing it, uh, became sort of legal loosely in 2004. So I started betting on presidential elections and it was sort of a side hobby until the Trump election. And Trump, I thought this was a very money-making opportunity. The British betting markets are now much bigger than they ever used to be. So I could bet as much money as I possibly could. And, 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 and basically dug in much deeper than I had before. So I'd sort of been around politics, but hadn't dug in deep for maybe, you know, 20 years or so. I mean, I'd been very active, but then it'd become inactive, it'd become skeptical of the political process, and decided, well, I should really dig in. And as part of this, I discovered this whole emerging movement in a cross-section of areas and what was happening ideologically, so I became involved for other political and legal reasons along the way. It was sort of like a Scott Adams win big league kind of thing, <laughs> where you get the- It's there somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, oh, there you go. Exactly, where you get like six degrees of separation, you're trying to learn this, you end up learning four or five other things in the process. And so I you know, went to the Republican National Convention, the Democratic National Convention, traveled across the country, talked to tons of people, dug into what was happening in the social media space, the Reddit space, the Twitter space. I didn't know what Twitter was until yeah. then, really. I knew some it bird thing. It was a happier time. It, exactly, it was. <laughs> uh, and when YouTube was still YouTube, you know, it wasn't CensorTube. Yeah. Uh, so the, I was uh, you know, involved and invested in it, went over to the UK, placed a lot of big bets. Uh, they thought I was nuts when I was doing it. They're like, you know, how, you know, Trump's not going to get elected. That was the sort of consensus. So much so that one of the big books, Patty Power, actually was paying out Hillary Clinton bets before the election. Jesus. So if you had bet on Hillary Clinton with Patty Power, they acted like you had already won and paid you out. Are they, are they still in business? Uh, they, they, they are still in business, uh, though they took a huge hit on the election after they'd taken a big hit on Brexit, which I'd bet on before that. And then after that, had bet on various European elections. So it was just understanding how the electorate works. I'm a sports better as well. And being able to predict and forecast elections was fun, and it was a way to just make extra money. And in the process, ended up having this whole life experience that was fun and entertaining and, and very profitable. Can I ask you what kind of profits we're talking about uh, here? About half a million dollars. Not so bad. The, uh, yeah, it was very nice. If I could have, met, if I could have bet more, I would have bet more. Yeah. The, uh, there was only limits. As an American, you only have li uh, access to the individual betting shops. You can't get onto the bet fair and the bet trade markets. If I could, I could have made seven figures with ease. It would have been nice. Jeez. All right. Well, there's a lot to talk about there, but yeah. but I really want to focus on some of the legal stuff because uh, we chatted a little bit in the green room. I'm starting to think as much uh, as much I obviously am a free speech guy, and we're gonna talk all about the First Amendment and all sorts of things, that the way the world is going right now with the platforms and with the trolls and with the anonymous accounts and with the targeted harassment and with the way that we see media members attacking kids, which you're very intimately involved with, and a whole bunch of other stuff, I'm starting to think we really need some legal answers to some of these problems, which is really against my default position as a person in terms of speech, and that's exactly why I wanted to have you here. So before we get to all that, um, just tell me a little bit about your legal history. When did you even get interested in law, and what sort of made you say, all right, I'm, I'm gonna be a lawyer. Lawyers aren't that well-liked, I'm gonna be one. <laughs> exactly. Are you trying to do your taxes all by yourself? You know, licensed professionals are much better suited to help you navigate through all the new tax codes. 
TaxFile connects you to CPAs and IRS enrolled agents who can help. Just visit taxfile.com slash Ruben, create an account, and TaxFile will provide a quote and match you to thousands of professionals ready to work with you instantly. This week, my listeners can get $50 off by using code Ruben during checkout. Simply go to taxfile.com slash Ruben, taxfile.com slash Ruben, and enter code Ruben at checkout. That's $50 off an on-demand professional service to file your taxes for you. Plus, TaxFile has apps for iOS and Android so you can securely chat with your tax pro on the go. That's taxfile.com, promo code Ruben, for $50 off your tax job. Also, you can feel safe knowing that all your information is secure as TaxFile adheres to advanced encryption standards. Pros on TaxFile have an average of 14 years experience. Access them 24-7 from your smartphone or computer. TaxFile will quickly solve your tax needs this season and provide you with expert year-round instant support. And now back to the show. Well, you know, I've always liked underdog representation, and that's sort of what my legal practice is. And that goes back to when I was a kid, my favorite TV show was The Equalizer. Uh-huh. So it was always to equalize the odds and, uh-huh. and to represent people against, even if I'm representing someone that's famous or well-known, they're stacked up against someone that has more institutional power or wealth or the U.S. government behind it. And so as a kid, I liked shows like Matlock and Perry Mason, and that was part of it. And, and you'd, you'd see lawyers as being integral to the process of making meaningful change, and particularly to stand up for people who couldn't stand up for themselves and use our legal system and legal rights to, to accomplish and achieve those objectives. And so that's why the law always appealed to me. It didn't appeal to me from a money-making perspective, though I've been very, you know, had been lucky in that regard. Uh, it appealed to me and didn't appear to uh, appeal to me on a status basis. It appealed to me as I can make a difference for little people, people like my father, who spoke out his whole life and, there's, uh, and often was punished for it. And the, uh, there's the old biblical proverb that says, the sins of the father will be visited on the son. I always say, well, the sins against the father are long remembered by the son. Mm. And so he was mistreated and maltreated because he stood up, not for himself, but for other people in a wide range of environments. And I just wanted to equalize the playing field if I could. And was he a lawyer also? No, he wasn't. He was, he was an accountant, but it wasn't a certified public accountant. Uh, so the, he went through all the craziness that... It was my first experience with the credentialing society. Here my father was a very skilled and gifted accountant, but because he wasn't a certified public accountant, he'd grown up in an era where that wasn't necessary, uh, he couldn't get the kind of jobs that other people could do. And so he was often both overqualified and underqualified for employment. And then he had a habit of standing up for people who were being maltreated or mistreated in his work environment or other environment, which led to him, he ended up being a newspaper guy, delivery guy. So when I was a little kid, we, he was delivering newspapers, throwing them outside the, uh, the door. He, we did a morning route and an afternoon route. Uh, and then he ended up doing inventory work. So he just picked up whatever blue collar work he could. So even though his education and his intellectual capabilities far exceeded what he could get economically, it was a product or a side effect of the credentialing society and the ability of more powerful people to take advantage and misuse and abuse that power against less powerful people like himself. Wow. So, all right, so let's flash forward a little bit to what what were maybe one or two of the cases that kind of got you got you sort of on the map so that now you've become one of the sort of, I think, one of the central legal figures in the, the free speech battle. So I started out doing all kinds of free speech representation, represented victims of domestic violence, was suing big banks before anybody was suing big banks and subprime lending. Was uh, I'd, I'd clerked for a Native American tribe, I'd clerked for a big corporate law firm, I'd clerked for a street lawyer. I always say if anybody wants to learn legal education, just read all of John Grisham's books. You'll get a good sense of how the huh. legal practice really works. Um, and worked for a big high-profile 
profile plaintiff's lawyer and finally got to a space where I could do the kind of cases I wanted to do. And I liked First Amendment cases and it happened to parallel in two areas of, of, of law. One was civil, where I was representing Ralph Nader. He went on TV and said, look, I'm getting bombarded. I have no lawyers left to help me. If somebody can, please reach out. I was like, sure, I'll take the case. So and there was, I remember we did the case in Arizona. It was me, Ralph Nader, and like 12 lawyers kept coming in. I kept wondering when the door was going to shut. <laughs> another lawyer came in. Another, you had the Democratic Party, Republican Party, both aligned to prevent his access to the ballot, deny people the right to circulate petitions for the cause or candidate of their choice. And so I took that case, and it took four years, a lot of litigation, a lot of fighting. But ultimately, we got one of the most important precedents in the country out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's now one of the most cited cases in the country that protects the right to circulate petitions, the right to speech in the context of elections, the right to choose who you want on the ballot, the right of third parties and independent candidates to access the ballot. Uh, in a weird way, though, even though just by the fact that it took four years, isn't that part of the problem right there? Because yes. four years later, it's like he doesn't necessarily have the energy to run again or Precisely. the movement kind of moves on to something else, et cetera. It, it was like the beginning of lawfare of its own kind, politically motivated ideological lawfare to exclude independent and dissident voices from being able to meaningfully participate in the political process. And the main goal and objective is to silence the audience, to not allow the audience to hear or choose or participate in the way they want to choose. They don't get to choose their news. They don't get to choose their views. That's what the censorship campaigns were about. And that crossed over into representing people who were accused of being tax protesters. And these were people who had very distinct political views about the way the tax laws were operating. They were mostly upfront about it with the IRS. I mean, how many people you know, write letters saying, I'm not going to pay taxes and here's why? Right. I mean, <laughs> right. So is, mostly these were libertarians, basically, right? It's never it, somebody that hates the tax system because they want to be taxed more, right? Exactly. That, that, that's never happened. Precisely. Exactly. Yeah. And it's people being open and honest about it. They're not trying to cheat anybody. They're not trying to defraud anybody. And the U.S. Supreme Court had said 20 years ago in a case called Cheek versus the United States, they were not supposed to put people in prison for having different beliefs about the tax laws especially given this is a country that was founded on people who had very unique beliefs about the tax laws. Uh, so I ended up representing Wesley Snipes in that context. I'd also represented him previously when he'd been falsely accused of, 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 of parenting a child in New York where they were abusing the family court system to invade his privacy, to lie and libel him. Uh, and basically, to, because of his celebrity, use his celebrity to make themselves notorious. Uh, so we brought a unique civil rights case in that context, had one, got them to fold and capitulate. He hired me then to represent him in the criminal case on a whole bunch of tax charges, ended up acquitted of all the felony, fraud, conspiracy charges, and even half the misdemeanor charges. On, on cases like that, I'm always curious, um, when it's a high-profile, rich celebrity and it's tax-related, I always think it's like these people, you know, a guy like Wesley Snipes, movie star, you know, he's worth millions and millions of dollars. The idea that he would, and I don't know the specifics, so sure. please correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea that he would know every specific thing that his accountant was doing all the time seems crazy to me like he's running a business where he's mostly probably focused on acting and traveling and everything else and it's like the idea that unless he instructed the guy to do something illegal that that you'd end up in jail because of something like that seems pretty bananas to me completely because what happened with him is he would had one accountant advisor that he started to distrust he thought I think this guy's up to something on, on real estate deals and other deals it turned out he was completely right he was trying to tell the New York authorities for years before the guy ended up getting busted and he this guy was involved with Tom Brokaw he was representing a whole roster of high-profile celebrities turned out he was embezzling from them in mass he'd abandoned his wife for a stripper long story so the this guy ended up going to jail for a long time. 
But, he, but Snipes was like, hey, there's a problem here. And nobody would listen. And that led him to turn to other professionals. And they said, you know what? If you have any questions, we'll go right to the government and get your answers. He was like, well, that's got to be no problem. They're going to talk to the government. They'll figure out what it no is. No way. That's how this unfolded? That's uh, how this whole thing unfolded. It was, in fact, they even tried to delete and destroy all of his letters and correspondence and, and communications. And luckily, they, they were, he had separately backed them up. If he hadn't, we wouldn't have been able to prove how much he had communicated directly to them. He even asked to be audited. He said, come in and audit me and then come back and tell me what is it I owe and why it is I owe it and how does the legal system work. And this is someone rooted in the African American and Native American tradition who has a long history of the laws not being applied the way they're supposed to be on the books. So the idea that maybe the law is not being applied the way it's supposed to be wasn't foreign to him. Mm -hmm. You have Native American tribes whose tribal agreements are still not being enforced. You have African Americans between 1865 and 1955 in the United States, like his parents, like his grandparents, who said the law on the books said they had the right to participate in the political process, the right to be on the jury, the right to run for office, and yet that wasn't happening in reality. So the idea that there was some uh, mismatch here made sense to him, and he just wanted, he said, well, let's go right to the government. And I'm Wesley Snipes, I have a little bit of attention, they'll probably yeah. answer my questions at least, and then everything will get resolved. That's why the jury was shocked by the case. This was a very conservative jury. The lead jury foreman was a guy who had been a uh, longtime corrections officer in upstate New York. They had deliberately manipulated the jury pool. They picked, it was literally an all-white jury pool. Mm -hmm. So there was a joke that it was as, as uh, the only thing more white than the snowfall from the Green Bay Packer New York Giants <laughs> came the day before was the jury pool in the Snipes case. But nine of the 12 jurors who were honest and got onto the jury said they didn't think he should be convicted of anything. There were three jurors who were holdouts who said, we're, we're, we want to convict him of things. And we came in with, they admitted they came in with a bias before they became part of the jury. So on the misdemeanors, they did a split verdict. They said, well, we'll convict him on these three misdemeanors, even though we don't think he's guilty of them, because that will be no problem. They didn't know there'd be a wacky sentence because there was shock at the outcome of the case. Uh, so how much of law is just that? Just mm -hmm. the public attention stuff, manipulating the media. I don't have to name, I could probably name a zillion lawyers that seem like they're far more interested in fame for themselves than doing the right thing. And just managing optics rather than getting to just what is right. Precisely. That's what it often is. I mean, you're seeing it now in the Roger Stone case where there's an obsession with silencing him. Mm -hmm. And all the people on the media on the left that talk about free speech and talk about the ability to protect yourself and how our criminal justice system has problems are suddenly mute. When here it is, you have a judge spending all this time saying maybe we shouldn't allow him to publish a book. How has that become part of American criminal justice process? Mm -hmm. So the effectively it often is defending a person in the court of public opinion because often what the government is doing is using people as sin goats, using people as sacrificial lambs, using people to coerce public opinion, often not really rooted in the facts of a case, not really rooted in the law of a case, targeting people solely because of their celebrity or their fame. Uh, and then you have lawyers who often look at a case and they don't look at the case about how do I win the case, they look at how do I get the most press coverage, how do I get the most media coverage, uh, and they often disserve their clients in that context. So it's critically important, especially in high-profile cases, to put the client first and to manage the, the court of public opinion at the same time. Yeah, and that cannot be easy, especially yep. in a day of social media. And look, the fact you're here talking, so it's not like you're you're, you're not like a right. totally private person. No, and yet you want to do what's right by your clients. And exactly. So like in Snipes' case, the I think the odds going back to yeah. odds, there was an eight to the odds that he was convicted of the top felony fraud counts was eight to one. So there was they said there was only about a 10, 11% chance of him being acquitted. You had C, you know people on CNN saying that he had no chance to win. Some are still prominent legal commentary now. 
Uh, and how, do, how do we always have legal comment? commentary people on CNN often, but all the cable networks who get everything wrong and they keep bringing them back. It's like their political been, commentary. Yeah, what? Oh, precisely. And these are people that have mostly never practiced law, never tried a case, <laughs> never dealt with a real case. And, and it's amazing. They'll just, they're there, they have a law degree, but they often don't have any legal experience and they're really there for, or for political purposes. They know if they say the right thing that their media bosses want them to say, they'll get rewarded even if what they're saying is complete and utter nonsense. Yeah, so one of the things that I've been saying over the last couple years, and, and you know I'm a free speech guy, is that right now I'm more concerned that we're silencing ourselves than the government is coming for our speech at this very moment. Now, of course, I understand the government can always come for our speech, and there are many ways that you're laying out right there that they can through going through the IRS or, or whatever else. But I'm more concerned right now about sort of the mob mentality, the way we're weaponizing the media and social media and the rest of it. So. Let's just start with the big question right now. Social media, are these publishers or platforms right now? Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and can you explain the difference between the two? Absolutely. So all of these big tech platforms originally were able to obtain their monopoly status two ways. First, they got Congress to pass special immunity laws, uh, loosely called Section 230, the particular section of the laws that applies, that says we're going to presume that everything you do is as a platform and not as a publisher. And consequently, you'll be immune from any lawsuit as a publisher as long as you are acting as a platform. So meaning that you're just the, you're just the space, so to speak. People can put all kinds of crap up on there. You can decide what you take down or leave up, but you're not endorsing it. Is exactly. That... You're just the public venue. You're, you're the, the, the venue where they're coming to organize the Republican Party on the election night. Right? You're the restaurant. You're the, the, you're the convention center. That's all you are. And then that was even additionally privately promised by people like Jack at Twitter, who said, I'll be the free speech wing of the free speech party. So he induces people to participate, induces people to become part of Twitter and to give them an, a competitive economic edge against their then competitors on the grounds that, hey, look, one, the law only applies if we're a platform, not a publisher. Secondly, we are promising you we will protect your free speech rights and your free speech liberties. Now, it's important in that context, free speech means the right to uh, not be stalked for your speech, the right not to be harassed for your speech, the right not to be censored for your speech. It's both. That's why I always tell for free speech is not just the right of expression. It means I have a right that someone can't target me because of my expression and use illicit mechanisms. They can question my ideas. They can attack my ideas. If I'm a public figure, they have limited space in which they can talk about me as a person. But what they can't do is invade my privacy. What they can't do is follow me down the street. What they can't do is put a billboard outside my home. These are things they can't do. So is that a, I mean, to me, that's a really fascinating change on the way things have happened. Because if I was to look at just generally what's going on on Twitter these days, it, mm -hmm. if, if I was to walk down the street right now and somebody just every day was waiting outside my house and started screaming at me and all sorts of things, there's legal recourse I could take, right? I can file a, what can I do? Yeah, you Give can file something. a civil suit and get an order of protection against them. Like people, like I, I did a lot of work back in the day when I was a young lawyer for victims of domestic violence. And we were part of the, the beginning of the orders of protection that got instituted for them. But it's not limited to the domestic violence context. It's anybody who's stalking, anybody who's harassing, anybody who's invading your privacy. You have an equitable right and a legal right to bring legal action against them and have the court say, I'm gonna stop you from doing this. And if you violate this, you're gonna be responsible for legal fees. You're gonna be responsible for cost. I can even put a statutory amount on there. And they often do, they'll say, every time you violate this, it's $1,000 or it's five. 10,000, whatever's necessary to deter. Those laws exist already there. 
This crazy cold weather makes me want to get comfy on the couch with a great bottle of wine, but not just any wine, a personalized bottle selected just for me by First Leaf, the only wine club that tailors its wine choices to your preferences. First Leaf sends their wine experts around the globe in search of the best wines, no middlemen, and then they share the savings with you. How does it work? Just go online, answer a few simple questions about your wine drinking preferences, and First Leaf sends you an introductory six pack of wine. Taste the wines and then rate them online. First Leaf uses your ratings to pick wines for your next shipment, which by the way, you can schedule as often as you'd like. After you rate your first six pack, the next pack should be even better. First Leaf, it gets better with every box. Sign up with my link and you'll get an exclusive intro offer, six bottles of wine for just $29.95, plus free shipping. Just go to tryfirstleaf.com slash Ruben. That's six bottles of wine for just $29.95, plus free shipping at tryfirstleaf.com leaf.com slash Ruben. And now back to the show. So are those laws, are there any laws related to that that exist in the digital space? Now, again, I want to be very clean when we're doing this because, so for, for example, all day long, trolls are jumping at me, yeah. go fuck yourself, all, you know, just yeah. the worst, it's far worse than that usually, but like yes, just the yes. worst kind of things all day long, same accounts, I block them, I mute them, they just make new accounts over and over and over. Okay, it's not the worst thing in the world, I'm still here, I'm alive, yeah. it's okay. Right. Um, but Doing it in the digital realm, I think people would see that very differently than stalking someone just outside of their house or in the realm of reality. It is only to a certain degree. The same laws apply. So it doesn't matter whether it's the digital world or the physical world, the same stalking laws apply, the same harassing laws apply. So somebody who stalks can be sued. Somebody who stalks, they can even be charged with crimes under particular cases. So they can be referred for criminal prosecution. That's happened to people that have done that to Mike Cernovich, for example. Mm -hmm. so, the, uh, so you can use civil remedies, you can re request criminal remedies with criminal referrals, you can bring equitable actions, you can bring legal actions, and the courts are actually very sensitive to it, particularly like in California, where because of the problem of stalkerazzi, uh -huh. They expanded them to the kind of protection either in the digital space or the personal space. And the U.S. Supreme Court has increasingly recognized that these days those spaces are indistinguishable. So it's interesting to me because as part of, let's say, the free speech crew online right now, I'm very hesitant of a lot of this stuff because it's like I want everyone to be able to express themselves. And yet I understand we need certain super specific laws, libel laws, slander laws, harassment laws. And yet... There's a certain irony where it's like the free speech crew are the ones that are going to have to defend those laws. It's, yes. like, it's like a really weird place for people like us to be in, I think. I agree. The way I think of it is I see it as an unequal equation. So what's happening is you're seeing big media, big powerful forces, people with big platforms be able to defame little people at will, be able to run smear campaigns against people at will, be able to attack and, and encourage stalking and harassment and, and online mobs at will and not be held responsible. And it's the little guy that's still fighting for their free speech. And yet they're the ones, the little guy who's getting sued by big institutional actors or backed by big institutional players. And they're being sued for defamation. They're being sued for libel. They're being sued for, they're being deplatformed. And so what we need to do is equalize that playing field. Because the First Amendment is also about protecting everybody's speech, and that means the little guy can't get harassed in ways the big guy is immune from, and the big guy can't use powers that the little guy doesn't have access to. So it needs to be equalized out. So true free speech means people who are important in the independent press and the freedom of press of the independent press not be harassed, not be not the legal system not be used against them disproportionately and discriminately, not have the deplatforming happening against them. De 
disproportionately and discriminately. And that's what's taking place, and that's what needs to equalize. So true free speech means we need to have some equality of treatment between everybody. Okay, so now backing that to the platform versus publisher part of this. So they, they help get these laws, what statute did you say? Two it's Section 230. Section 230, okay. So they, they help get these laws passed. Now they're treated as platforms. But it seems that they're acting often more as publishers, right? In fact, they now admit that. So in other suits that I brought against Twitter, they said that they are a publisher and they want all of the protections as a publisher. They want all the legal privileges of a publisher. Because a publisher has a wide range of special protections, particularly if it has any institutional form or backing. So there are certain libel laws that apply to individuals differently than they apply to corporations. The same is true of big media publishers. So they're now saying to courts, so in the Prager suit, uh, against YouTube. Yeah. YouTube and Google's defense is we're acting as a censor. We're acting as an editor. We're acting as a publisher. And look at all these privileges we have as a, as, as a publisher. Which a lot of people, and it was one of the issues we raised, was if they're acting as a publisher, they shouldn't have the immunities of a platform. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the courts have interpreted what Congress sent to them in a political way. And this is often the case with a lot of law. A lot of law is interpreted through a political framework. And how they interpreted it as, oh, the is Congress doesn't want us to allow big tech to be sued. So we're going to give them all the protections as a publisher and all the Section 230 immunities as a platform. So they have a degree of protection, as Senator Hawley described it, a degree of immunity and benefits that no publisher in the world has, that Congress is the one that actually gave it to them as the courts have construed it, though some would argue that's beyond what Congress intended. Right, so Prager lost the initial lawsuit, correct? Yep, and are they, they and I know Dennis, but I actually don't know the answer. Are they pursuing other legal measures that They're you still know trying of? to go through the appellate process, but they're unlikely to prevail under the current environment, because the current environment is such that, like the when I sued Twitter, I brought unique novel theories. I brought breach of contract theories, uh, Consumer Protection Act theories, because my uh, equitable theories, because my view was Twitter had lied to people to induce their participation, profited from that participation, sold that person's, like a, someone like Charles Johnson would come in and 30,000 other people join Twitter to follow Charles Johnson. They now have all of their private information. They get to aggregate that information and then marketize it and monetize it. And then they get to censor and ban Charles Johnson forever from Twitter because they don't like one tweet he made. Well, if my view is that's really a breach of contract. That's really a breach of equitable duties and obligations. Mm -hmm. But the court saw, oh, Congress is saying Section 230 means I'm not supposed to allow Twitter to ever be sued for anything. Mm -hmm. That's what's happened. And that's why Congress needs to fix that side of the equation, because unfortunately the courts haven't stepped up to do it themselves. Do, do you think there's an interesting piece of this that is just because of anonymous accounts, and I don't know what the legal protections or non-protections would be around that, but if, if you generally look at what's happening online, mm -hmm. if, you, if we removed anonymous accounts, and by the way, as a free speech guy, I'm not for that because I understand off, many times, many times, I mean, I see this with people that I meet at live events, they'll come up to me after and they say, you know, I have an anonymous account because I'm a conservative, and mm -hmm. I don't, you know, so it's not that they're sure. trolls, it's not that right. they're flame flaming people or whatever else it is. But there's a piece of me that thinks, man, if you just removed anonymous accounts and, and put, put aside the decent human part of it for a second, sure. that actually 80 to 90% of all of this nonsense would disappear because you've got brave keyboard warriors with no skin in the game that are trying to sow havoc. I don't know if there's a legal 
piece of this somewhere? There's a legal way to do it. So if you're an, uh, operating on an anonymous account and you're doing something that's not protected by the First Amendment, like stalking, like harassing, like, a, like invading someone's privacy, which is a broad tort that covers a wide range of remedies, including like in the Covington pay case, we'll yes, bring the first case that establishes that doxing is in fact an invasion of privacy. So uh, you can sue, you can require that Twitter or Google, whoever did it, Facebook, identify that individual, uh, and, and consequently that individual can be held legally liable for their course of conduct. So people who think they can hide, they can do bad things behind anonymity, you're wrong. They can do good things behind anonymity, and the First Amendment encompasses that. Anonymity is often critical to all kinds of free speech. But if what you're doing has always been outside the scope of the First Amendment, like stalking, like harassing, like intending to censor and shame people based on lies and libels, you can be held individually liable, and your anonymity of your account will not protect you from legal responsibility. It's so interesting because I'm, I'm hearing you on all of this, and then there is this other, there's, there's the absolutist part of me on speech, mm -hmm. that even though I know we need these protections more than ever, there's just this little piece of me that's like, ah, I don't want everything to get caught up in legalese. Right. And, that, and I guess that ultimately is the balance that guys like you have to deal with every day. Absolutely, it was the pitch that we had made to Senator Hawley was don't treat these as utilities and start to regulate them. I understand why people are calling for that because what they're seeing is monopoly power. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is in the First Amendment, including in California, uh, and to, it used to be the law, and it still is the law in some places, which is if you have the effect of a corporate monopoly on the public square, you are then considered a state actor for First Amendment purposes. Mm -hmm. This was established way back because you had company towns who, who were like, well, how do we suppress this union movement? Well, why don't we just own the whole town? We own the sheriff, we own the cop, we own the public square. Now we'll ban petitioning. Now we'll ban circulating. Now we'll ban organizing. So by that definition, you, you would argue the social media companies are? Absolutely. Okay. It's called the Pruneyard Doctrine here in the state of California, which applies to private malls. Mm -hmm. Private malls can't ban you from circulating certain things in the public spaces of those private malls. Well, is there any more uh, monopolized public square than big tech media, than Twitter, than, than Facebook, than YouTube, than Google? They own, they own 85 to 95% of the public square. And all corporations are creations of the state. And they get certain protections for that because they have a corporate charter. They're given certain immunities from individual liability for participating in that company. Well, in exchange for that, once they get to the place where they monopolize, the public square, those two things exist, both the monopoly and the public square, which is usually over 75, 80% control of the market space. When they have that, and when it's the public square, I think they should be held to the same First Amendment standards as everyone else, because otherwise we create this huge loophole in the First Amendment to privatize control of the public square. So uh, Eric Weinstein, who I'm guessing you're familiar with, I've oh, had yes. a couple of discussions with him about this, and one of the ideas that he's put forward and my libertarian side doesn't really like this, but, but I see some value in it, is that because we don't, we don't have public spaces online, Correct. so it makes everything, so in effect, everything's private, there's nothing public, so the government has nothing to do with anything, but maybe this would be an actual good use of the government. If there were platforms that were government platforms that the only rule basically was you can't break the laws of the United States right. so that people could get their information out there, but, you, but if you break the laws of the United States, you're in trouble, then the, the private company could do whatever the hell they wanted and we'd have no reason to we'd have no ability to stop them but in effect because everything is private there's nothing public anymore right, exactly and so my view is that once you become a monopoly and particularly when you become a monopoly based on federal congressional immunity then you have different obligations than any other private actor
So that's one argument. So mm -hmm. one argument is if you become, if you become, a mon if you choose to have a monopoly in the in the public square space, you're going to have the same First Amendment rules as any government actor. That's one option. Another option is just to condition their continued immunity on First Amendment inclusion. This was the argument that I made to the Twitter lawyers in the Johnson case. It was like, look, you guys don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like well, they said, they were worried about stalking and harassing. And it's like very simple. Just take all the First Amendment rules that already exist, incorporate them within your terms of service, mm -hmm. and then you'll you'll eliminate ninety percent of your concerns and questions. And you won't have to deal with a lot of the nonsense, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like right now, their rules would be considered void for vagueness if they were state rules. <laughs> Because right. you have rules that are subject to individual women discretion. And they're intentionally written that way, right? Absolutely. I mean, did, did you catch a, any of uh, Tim Pool and uh, on Joe Rogan with Jack? Exactly. Yeah. I and mean, he detailed this instance after instance after instance. I mean, the way they decided to deplatform Alex Jones was highly subjective, very interpretive. And I've seen far worse conduct. I mean, for example, the Covington case, you had a prominent Hollywood figure show an image of saying the, Ho saying the Covington kid should have to go through a shredder yeah. and be killed. You had Reza Aslan calling from the be punched in the face. Yeah. Nothing was done about that. And yet uh, uh, Alex Jones posts something that's just a funny video and they're like, oh my goodness, we have to get rid of Alex Jones. Okay, so I want to spend a whole bunch of time on Covington because I think actually that was the moment that this shifted and, and maybe at a legal sense it crystallized in my mind a little bit more. That's actually when I reached out to you because sure, yeah. I saw you just going for it, going for it, and I thought, mm -hmm. okay, this is a conversation we have to have. But let's let's talk about Jones for a minute. So yep. Jones, so you've, you've done some defense work with Jones. Yes, I'm one. representing Alex Jones in InfoWars, and now his outside general counsel on all these legal matters. So you represent him across the board on, on all of these things. Oh. So I guess uh, my first question is, what's it like when Alex Jones <laughs> you know, knocks on your door or calls you up? You know, he's a very animated guy, very nice guy, very open, very sincere. What was fascinating is from the get-go, he was saying 90% of what they're saying about me isn't, isn't the case. He's like, I would defend this on, on free speech and free press grounds anyway, but what they're actually saying, I said I didn't say. Mm -hmm. I never attacked these families. I never went after these families. I never told people to go to the family's homes. None of that. Yeah, so and this is, that stuff specifically is about the Sandy Hook. Exactly, stuff, the Sandy right? Hook case. And so that they're, they took a, a Media Matters video and assumed that's what I said, and it wasn't really. And they took most of that out of context and didn't put in that I had corrected the record a long time ago. Um, and so part of it was, you know, very nice guy, actually very friendly guy, very accessible guy. Uh, even more so than Snipes, he gets mobbed when he goes out in public with people wanting selfies and that sort of thing. Um, and he doesn't act like the Jaguar did with the lady. You know, he's very nice and sociable and friendly. Um, so he uh, runs a you know, nice small business enterprise, you know, access TV to talk radio to internet. And he's intended to be the poster boy of their deplatforming campaigns. They, they, what I told the press is this case really isn't about Alex Jones. It's about the ability of the independent press to operate. Uh, will lawfare be discriminately or disparately used against ordinary individuals in the same way that deplatforming is happening already in the big tech space? And so are we going to protect the little guy or not? And Alex Jones, they figured, would be the convenient. They would sort of create a parody of him, a caricature of him, that they could get the public to believe, make, them, make the audience feel bad if they watch him. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, may feel guilty to be associated or attached with him. I mean, as soon as my representation was announced, and another lawyer, Norm Pattis, big old school civil rights lawyer in Connecticut, you know, I think he still has a ponytail. I mean, he's old school. Yeah. He had friends and family members that are connected to what happened at Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. So he uh, immediately you know, wanted to be huh. involved in the case. As soon as he was, Huffington Post writes a hit piece on him. They don't talk about a civil rights legacy. They don't talk about any of that. It's entire, the whole thing is intended to smear him and to send a, a message that if you're a lawyer and you dare defend Alex Jones, we're gonna try to destroy your reputation in the public space. And that's exactly the problem that needs to be fixed and remedied. Yeah, so 
Related to Jones specifically, I mean, one of the things that I thought was, was most incredible, I forget the exact order of it, but basically within 48 hours, all the platforms took him down. Yes. And it's like, okay, is that, is that that you guys truly are calling each other and coordinating it, or is it that you're all sort of cowards, you, somebody breaks the ice and now you're just followers? And I don't know that it matters either way, right? It probably doesn't matter either way. But what I thought was, okay, it doesn't even matter what he has said, short of breaking an American law, in my exactly. opinion. The, the real issue here is that if he can't be on there, then why is Farrakhan on there? I'm not even, I'm not making a comp comparison, direct comparison to them. Why is Hamas on there? We could do a zillion other things, you know? The disparity and, is obvious and evident. There are people who've said far worse things that just happen to have a different ideological, intellectual perspective. Was, even if you took all the accusations against him at face value, and 90% of them are not true, the, what, and that's your typical smear campaign. The conservative or the person on the right or the person some, on the independent anti-war left will often be attacked and smeared. 90% of what's said about them is not true. But even if it was true, what the other side has said is usually far worse and far more egregious and far more excessive. And it's the obvious disparate treatment. They're using their, their concentrated power to, uh, and, and including their lawfare power, mm -hmm. to effectively uh, wipe out the little guys so that only the big guy's voice is heard. And ultimately it's about the audience. Because Alex Jones is still going to talk. It's just, can the audience hear him? Mm -hmm. So it's about their right to choose. Their right to choose what news they want to look at, what views they want to have, what, how they filter information. I always say, like, like, I don't represent people that are accused of racism or the rest. People that are actual racists, not everybody. These days, everybody's Right, well, racist. being accused and being yeah, an actual exactly. racist are but, very different But people things, so. who are really involved in something, like, I, I generally avoid representation of them. Um, the, uh, because I just don't want to be affiliated. Just because that is an old personal issue. But if you look at what those people, I've always said, let those people debate. Because if you watch Richard Spencer debate somebody else, 99% of the time, the nice, calm, reasonable person is not going to say Richard Spencer is right. Mm -hmm. So always expose ideas to more ideas, more sunshine. Because let the ideas get, let, trust the audience. That's really what they're all saying. All what big tech is doing, what these big lawsuits are doing against little guys is intended to say, we don't trust the audience to make up their own mind. We don't trust the audience to make up their own decisions. We have to control what you think. We have to control what you do because you might choose something that we don't want you to do if you actually have freedom of choice, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. Do you think lawsuits are the answer to stop some of this stuff? I'm also realizing right now that our runway to fix this is becoming perilously short. Like we're getting to the abyss pretty damn quick. The 2020 election is right around the corner and that seems to me to be what this is all ramping up to. Absolutely. The Covington case was such a glaring example of that. So I, I was on vacation in Mexico. In yeah. Okay, so let's just go all in sure. on Covington right now. Yeah. So it was a little town north of Puerto Vallarta. I was just hanging out, just you know, going through Twitter. And I poor seen... son of a bitch, try on Twitter <laughs> hey, on vacation. Exactly, you exactly. Yeah. I was just, eh, let's see what happens. Yeah. And so I see Maggie Haberman the premier reporter for the premier news publication in the country covering American politics. New York Times, yeah. Exactly. S basically calling for the expulsion of a bunch of kids that she's never met, that she doesn't know, based on an event she didn't see. And I found that so shocking. I was like, we're crossing a whole new line now. If we're going to go, it's one thing to go after what somebody said 10 years ago. That's problematic on its own terms. We'll, get, we, to, we'll get to that in a little bit too. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we have statutes of limitations for. But the, uh, is that you're not going to be held responsible for what you did when you're 10. But the, or when you're 20, when you're 40. But the, here these kids were, who were just going up to D.C. to be part of the pro-life march. 
Uh, and usually the pro-life march, I've, I've had family participate in that. They're, they're just having fun. You know, they're not mean. They're not out there harassing people. They're just expressing what they believe. Uh, these kids are having fun, probably their first time ever to Washington, D.C. They're by the Lincoln Memorial, this beautiful memorial. And all of a sudden, they start getting harassed out of the blue. And they have likely never met the black Hebrew Israelites. Mm -hmm. right? Some of us that have know what's coming. I, every, I lived in New York City for many years. I've been yelled every, at by these guys many times. Yeah. Every insult known to man. It's yeah. like really, they're almost like an insult comic. I mean, <laughs> the routine is so extreme. Yeah. It's like they find something, they go, next thing, the next thing, the next they're thing. They're like bad Don Rickles, basically. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The worst version. Yeah. Right? It's like you combine Farrakhan with Don Rickles. Yeah, right? So, <laughs> right. That, but these kids have no idea. Yeah. And they have an African-American friend that's there with them. And the, he's being attacked. And so they start defending him. They start attacking, making various anti-gay slurs. They, they, question, they respond back to that in defense of people who are gay. Yeah. So it's like, these are not mean kids. These are kids trying to handle a shocking environment. They decide to go internal and start, okay, let's not deal with these guys. Let's start, do our school cheers. One of their school cheers is the old haiku, is the, is the haiku dance, mm -hmm. which is the great New Zealand rugby team, all black. Yeah. I, in fact, two weeks before, I'd shown it to my son. So I was like, look at how awesome this no, is. No, it's awesome. It's all over YouTube, by the way. Anyone can watch it. And, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, when I first saw it in the movie with Matt Damon, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. I, that's the greatest sports dance I've ever seen. Yeah. So the, it, in fact, before, if I want to get inspired by something, I'll just put it on and go and get ready. Yeah. So, the, so they do that as part of it. That's why when the kid's tearing his clothes off, and it's right after that's happening that all of a sudden a Native American comes up with some friends and he's doing the drums. So two-thirds of the kids think, oh, he's joining in because we just did the haiku thing. Oh, this is great. And what do they know? The most popular uh, Native American sports thing they know is the, is the tomahawk chalk yeah. from, uh, from the Florida State, from Kansas City Chiefs. Cleveland Indians. Atlanta Braves. Yeah, yeah. All the places where they're familiar. I and mean, they're you know, right on the, on the border of the Kentucky-Ohio border. So the kind of programs they'd be familiar with, that's what they see. Not, nobody's mocking him. Nobody's chanting, build the wall at him. Nobody's blocking him. Nobody's surrounding him. And then at one point, they start, some of the kids start to figure out, okay, something's odd because some of the people behind him are saying, go back to Europe. And it's like, well, where did that come from? Uh, and then they realize something's weird and then they just leave. And then as they're on their bus home, all of a sudden their lives are being upended. And they're not being upended by just some random bot accounts who started. They're being upended by Kathy Griffin, who's calling for them to be doxxed. They're upended by Maggie Haberman, calling for them to be expelled. They're upended by Matthew Dowd, who's on ABC, who's a, who's a prominent uh, Catholic on ABC, saying bad things need to happen to these kids. And a Navarro, who's saying bad things need to happen to these kids. Almost the entire media, and then you have Hollywood celebrities yeah. calling for them to be put through the shredder, for them to be attacked, for them to be, you had a, a, a writer who claimed to be part of Saturday Night Live, oh, yeah. say she was gonna extend sexual favors for anybody who physically assaulted these people. And I was like, these are private kids. These are, by the way, these are blue check verified people. These All are not fake accounts. These are people these that are Twitter legit. says you should pay attention to, that we've verified, that we've validated, that we've authenticated, that we've authorized. And uh, in Twitter, social media does almost nothing about this. In fact, they run with the fake news story. And these kids' lives are almost over in five seconds based on a misleading video. Um, and so I saw it, and I, uh, when I first saw the video, I was like, oh, that's going to be a fake news story. Just because you know DC politics. You know, you know lefty protest culture. You know the chances that a bunch <laughs> of Catholic kids came up and found a lefty to harass is not real high in Washington, <laughs> D.C. If yeah. they had said it happened in a small town in Alabama, okay, maybe. Mm. Uh, but it, it, I was like, this story doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, that will probably blow over. And th that was while I was getting on a plane to go to Boosterias. Then I get to Booster and see these things, and I'm like, they're going to destroy these kids' lives? 
And I realized if they think if they can do this, they can do anything to anyone, anytime, anywhere. And that's exactly, so then you started tweeting about it alongside a couple other people, and I thought, a couple other people in the legal world, yeah. and I thought, all right, I've gotta talk to this guy, because if, if this one doesn't get corrected, mm -hmm. which fortunately, thanks to you, and it's ongoing, yes. uh, you and several other people, it is getting corrected, right. but if, I thought if this one doesn't get corrected, if we let them demolish high school students, we're done. Exactly. We are done. So can you catch us up on sort of where, where this is all at now? So what I did initially is I first just put out a tweet that said, if anybody wants to sue Maggie Haberman, I'll represent them for free. And I was just <laughs> agitated. You know, I was just yeah. ticked off. Yeah. And, and I didn't tune into Twitter until like two days later when I came back. And all of a sudden it blown up and I'm getting all these inquiries and I'm like, okay, I realize that this is becoming very high profile. And so I go on Fox and my goal is to get everybody to start to re retract, start to back up, start to retell a different story. And, and fortunately, almost all the institutional media starts to backtrack fast. So to be clear, you did not want to go the legal route, actually. You were giving everybody, all. I mean, I saw you do this. You gave them the chance. Guys, just delete the tweets. Uh, did you even ask them to issue apologies? I don't and, even remember but, that But all I said was, I said that everybody's got 48 hours to do one of three things. Yeah. Either correct or delete or apologize. Just do something to correct the record. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to her credit, Congresswoman Omar, who usually has no problem saying anything under <laughs> God's green earth, uh, she did. She did it within an hour. But she only did it because roll call covered my story. Right. As soon as roll call covered my story, it's like, oh, maybe I can get sued. And you know, took it down. Yeah, and by the way, right before that, she had sent out a tweet linking them to white supremacists and a whole bunch of other and stuff. And a whole so, bunch of false yeah, information. Yeah, yeah. She libeled them in whole new, new unique ways. Yeah. You know, leave it to her to figure out a way to do that. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> this uh, is a member of Congress, correct. by the way. Yeah. Then you have Senator Warren, who's running for the president of the United States repeating false statements about these kids. Well, that's because she's Native American. So. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. She has to stand up for her tribe. Yeah. The level, like they portrayed him as a Native American elder. Well, I clerked for Native American tribes. I worked for one of these old school lefty, one of the best tribal lawyers in the country. And I was like, I was like, I don't think he's an elder of that particular tribe. Then I realized they were just confusing the terms because he's elderly. They were going to call him an elder. I was like, that's an insult to all the I mean, most Native American elders are very carefully selected. Mm -hmm. They take their job very seriously. In fact, their court system, if, if we had an ideal court system in the world, it would be the Native American elder system. Huh. I'd be all for it. Because there's 12, 12 people sit around, you come in, you tell them your dispute, and they try to find a remedy that will satisfy everybody. And they try not to be too punitive. They, they try not to be too, uh, uh, too involved. They just try to say, okay, what's caused this problem? How can we address the cause of it? And, and they're focused on reconciliation. Hmm. How can we bring people together so it doesn't happen again, and people don't feel bad at the end of it? Not great for your profession, but well, that's, exactly. Uh, but a much better system. I'd be all for it. I'd be I'd, <laughs> I'd happy, happily forfeit my law degree to see that system put in place. Have the the twelve members of your community get to decide these kind of disputes and find ways to put people back together and protect all the things that matter to us, rather than deepening the division and the bitterness that exists. And the legal system often creates that. People often leave it even when they win unsatisfied. And so the uh, so that but so they put this guy in that context just like he was a Vietnam War veteran, the, was really not really being accurate. They're trying to script a narrative, trying to tell a story, but doing it to these kids. And, and clearly the message was, if we can destroy them, we can destroy you. It was an ultimate exemplar mechanism of media narrative structuring. Mm -hmm. And that's why I volunteered to help him out. And so now I represent 14 families in Covington. Oh, about 90% of the people, I, I went on Fox and said, 48 hours notice, 
just clean it up and we'll be done. Yeah. And even after that, I've given people additional opportunities and additional opportunities. Please take it down. Please correct. The, none of the family members want to sue. They don't want to deal with the nightmares of the legal system. They don't yeah. have to go through all that hassle hurdle. Um, but they want the record corrected and they don't want it to happen to anyone else. That's it. And so I was like, let's set a record, let's set a pattern, let's set a precedent here that this can get corrected and remedied, that you can't do this to these kids, you can't do this to these people, that you do have standards, you have to be bound by those standards, you have to be governed by those standards, and you have to act according to those standards. For those that refuse to do anything about it, they're going to be sued. Yeah, so, so no some problems. of them still left the tweets up or didn't apologize. Kathy or... Griffin, Matthew Dowd, oddly enough, Maggie Haberman, uh, Senator Warren, uh, Congresswoman Howland. Uh, those are the five highest profile examples of people who refuse to correct. When you see a mob descend, it's a little, it's a little hard to figure out how coordinated it is, whether mm -hmm. it's groupthink, is this coming from the top, is this organic? As right. much as you've had to deal with these things, and especially mm -hmm. since you dealt with the most recent yeah. one that's still unfolding right now, what's your take? Is, is it a little bit of everything? It's two different things. One is they've started to green light mob culture. That's what was scary here, because this started out with a bot account mm -hmm. who was spreading it through sort of liberal ideological culture, who was trying to create an online mob. But the reality is that online mob would have never reached critical mass, at least as related to these kids, without the blue checkmark crowd saying, yay, yay, yay. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. They're the green light for online mob behavior. And that's why they have to be stopped and, and they have to correct their actions or they have to be remedied in court, because they are the ones that are permitting it and expanding it. And for them, I don't know how often it's deliberate and how often it's a cultural mindset. Mm -hmm. I used to call it cotton ball culture. So in the South, people used to go to the cotton ball. They're part of the privileged classes when they're 16 and 17. And they're sort of inco incorporated and acculturated to a certain mindset. So it's not that they all get together and conspire, but that they have a certain point of view that's, that's been created by the sh culture they shared. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some of the m online mob culture that's been festering over the past half decade, decade. And the worst part of it is it continued to be green light by institutional people or people with big platforms and big power. Are you shocked also how the racial element has mm. become so blatant? So it was mm. like, these kids are white, so you know they have punchable faces. Or, yes. or excusing the black Israelites Just because, because, because they're, black. they're black, so they can call these kids faggots and that's okay. Even right. though you're supposed to defend gay people, but I guess if it's black people, you know they create yeah. this oppression it's Olympics. The intersectional yeah, this intersectional lunacy. So are you just shocked how, how solidified that is in so many people's brains? Well, it's extraordinary for like two different reasons. One, whenever I see people do it or raise it, my instinctual view is I was like, well, what has that person actually done for civil rights? So like when I've been attacked, I'm like, well, I've done civil rights for 20 years. I've done very difficult cases in very difficult places advocating for civil rights. So I was like, is, is this a person really out there trying to help protect people? Or is it somebody who wants a, a social brownie point and social prestige point for being on the right political side? Mm -hmm. um, and that's 95% of them. These are people that aren't actually doing anything mm -hmm. to improve the well-being of African-Americans and Latinos in this country. The second part of it is, it's become social prestige to uh, out people that are, op that are a particular disfavored political class. And it happens to be that right now our disfavored political classes 
our white people, our men, our people of certain sort of parts of the country, certain political orientation. Kids wearing MAGA hats. Exactly. I was like, that's the same sort of bigotry. The bigotry doesn't know color. Bigotry is bigotry. And this is just racial bigotry disguised as, uh, as trying to protect people. They're not out to protect people. They're out to hurt and harm people, and they just want to feel morally justified when they do it. So when you now have to have to move forward on this lawsuit that you're, you're saying you're going into not really because you want to you're giving right. these people a chance to go out how does this even uh work logistically when you're going after people that have nothing to do with each other other than they all did it on the same platform so we're going to bring it as a class claim so all the plaintiffs will be combined so all 14 kids will be one group of plaintiffs and all the defendants will be combined so the uh so you can combine the defendants together when there's a common nucleus of facts and they're behaving in a coordinated way even if it doesn't rise to the level of, say, legal conspiracy or aiding and abetting, which it may in some of these instances, the effect of it is you can add them together because for judicial economy purposes, they're all part of the same event, and it's easier for one judge to preside over all the cases combined than the cases differently. Uh, and so it's interesting. Some of the left media's claim, use, use of these kind of defamation claims has done use this exact procedure, hmm. and it's time to use the exact procedure back the other way. you got to be careful what you wish for, huh? Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on with Tucker Carlson right now. Now, mm -hmm. Tucker's been on this show. I go on his show every couple weeks. Yep. I, I find him to be a decent guy. We have political disagreements that we have expressed mm -hmm. to each other publicly before, but I think he's on the right uh, side, especially when it comes to the free speech stuff. Oh, yeah. now, now, Media Matters, which you mentioned already, they're, they're going after him. They're finding old audio clips on a shock jock, uh, Bubba, what's his name? Bubba, Bubba Gump, Bubba, yeah. <laughs> something Bubba. It, uh, see, then, yeah. I, I know it's got Bubba in it. Bubba the something in the, but yeah, 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 whatever it is. But in, in effect, a Howard Stern-like figure. Exactly. Where I was thinking, I tweeted something the other day that I wish Howard Stern was maybe a little more engaged these days than he is. I don't begrudge him. He's, he's lived mm -hmm. through a lot and he's, had to, sure. he's been a great fighter on mm -hmm. our side of the free speech thing. But it's like, if he was to take the 30 years of stuff that politicians, actors, comedians, authors, musicians, everybody has said, the crazy sexual acts that have been done in that studio, all those things, and said, you know what? This is all part of life. We right. all say things, we get in atmospheres where you joke differently this way than you would that way. Exactly. All of these things, like I would love to help have him aiding us right now in this mm -hmm. fight. Agreed. So that's just one piece of this, but yeah. putting that aside, mm -hmm. Media Matters is now digging into old things of, of Tucker's, and you know he, apparently he said faggot, there were a couple other things, and they're trying to make it sound like he's racist and he's for abusing kids and all of these things. Yes. And I wonder what his legal recourse is. Now, he's not apologizing, that, that's one thing, which I think that's pretty good for the, if you're gonna stand against the mob, don't apologize. Yep. But also, if they're, because their goal is just to destroy this man. Their goal isn't some sort of legal justice, right? Mm -hmm. Their goal isn't their goal isn't to help anyone, exactly, right? I don't right. I, unless there's doing something that I can't figure out. Yeah. Their goal is to destroy a man, and if you Absolutely. can destroy a man, you can destroy an idea, and you can get all sorts of other people to shut up. So, Precisely. what the hell do we do? It's very much a censorship shaming campaign designed to marginalize his audience and marginalize him from having access to his audience and to be an example to future people so that they won't, hey, you better not come after big tech, which is really what distinguishes Tucker from anyone else on Fox or anyone else in the, the political conservative space. He's probably the lead high profile person taking on big tech in this country. One of the leading guys saying- I think you're telling me I should have you on retainer. Is that yeah, where? <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, that's what's <laughs> happening. It's a 
is systematic, it's institutional, it's, it, and it's deliberate, and it's obvious. So, like, I first got familiar with this aspect of it in the context of representing Alex Jones because I was trying to figure out why do people think he said a bunch of stuff that he actually didn't say or did things that he actually didn't do or think 90% of what he said was this as opposed to that. And then I found out watching Joe Rogan that it was actually a Media Matters thing that Joe Rogan himself watched. He's like, oh, no, I saw this Media Matters thing. It's like... Who would trust media matters? It's like they, they're politically motivated. They're partisan oriented. They take various forms of, like people complain about secret corporate cash and dark money. Media matters has tons <laughs> of secret corporate cash and dark money. Is that, is that a big problem right here that the nonprofits now are probably, I don't know all the laws related to nonprofits, but they're probably in almost every political case stepping beyond their boundaries? They definitely are. And then what's happening is they're becoming, clearly they're partisan organizations. So here you have, nobody would think media matters is nonpartisan. I'm pretty sure they didn't go after uh, Joy Reid on cable news when her whole Precisely. thing went down about the anti-gay blog posts. Exactly. Yeah. They've defended all kinds of people on the left who've said all far worse things and at least are politically ideologically aligned with the left or supposed to be in the first instance. And this is the left set of standards that something you say 20 years ago somehow means you can never have a public platform ever again for the rest of your human existence. This is not an American standard. This is not a conservative standard. This is very much a left standard. The, but they don't apply it to their own people ever at all. I mean, some of the things Joe Biden has said over the years. Yeah. You know, he's the leading Democratic candidate for the presidency. And then that guy opened his mouth and crazy stuff came Well, out. half the things that Trump says now, although he says them sloppily, are the exact same things that Obama said about immigration and Clinton said about immigration and Dianne Feinstein and the rest of them. I Precisely. Mean, yeah. So the, it's extraordinary for the, for the sort of one-sided application. But clearly Tucker is a target because Tucker's willing to take on big tech. And the goal is they're, they're testing when can we use something in the person's past. Because what's extraordinary about all of this, what unites all of it, whether it's the the Covington case or the Alex Jones case is that you have people who are unwilling to debate ideas. It's all about if you disagree with them, then they're going to target you as an individual. They're going to make your life difficult as an individual. They're going to harass you as an individual, stalk you as an individual. They've already been to Tucker's house, by the way. Precisely. When, when his wife was there and had no clue what was going on. And they're banging on the door. And that was the reason why Fox went off Twitter for an extended time period, because Twitter would do nothing about it. I mean, the, the extraordinary discrepancy and disparity everybody can witness. And, everybody, and people like Tim Pool, who's on the left, can say, this is problematic. This is kind of obvious what you guys are doing. And we recognize how problematic it is because they're not going to stop there. It's like Alex Jones. They're not going to stop with Alex Jones. They're going to use it as an example to try to go after everyone else, to scare and intimidate everyone else. You better not be in the independent press. You better not be in the independent speech. You better not be sharing a dissonant narrative or we're going to be able to demonetize you, deplatform you, uh, debank you, uh, be, or, or defame you routinely and regularly and get away with it. And that's why we need to equalize the, the playing field. And, but for Tucker's case, what he could do uh, is he could potentially go after media matters for misrepresenting or mischaracterizing the set of events. Mm -hmm. They have a habit of putting out a video that decontextualizes what happened. They did it to Alex Jones. They would take him where he's talking about this subject, put in two, a minute uh, where it looks like he's talking about Sandy Hook and he's actually not. He's talking about something else. Mm -hmm. And they would say these are all of his statements. So my, it, they've likely done the same thing to him. But right. there's limited remedies. I also saw one of, I think it was one of the directors of Media Matters. I actually retweeted it saying, if you think this is bad, we've got a lot more or something to that effect. And I thought, this, they're, they're telling you how evil they are. Because they're saying, we are releasing this information in a calculated way to destroy a man. We're not, right. just, we're not exactly. just doing it for public good, like we found all this stuff, and we're just gonna put it all out there on day one because people should know about his past. It's like, we're gonna keep the monster being fed Absolutely. so that it can keep feeding on Correct, on and it's why are they so scared of ideas? If they think Tucker's wrong on ideas, 
debate his ideas. Why attack him? Why, especially why attack him on something he said 20 years ago on a shock jock show? There's also something crazy you could do. You could actually pick up the remote. You're not gonna believe this. There's a button on that thing that allows you to scroll up or down. Have you seen this thing? Exactly. I mean, if you don't like what you're hearing, you don't have to listen to it. If you think it's wrong, you should engage it. Years ago, Professor Lash, great historian, passed away some years ago. He said, the reason why we expose our ideas and debate other people isn't necessarily to persuade them. It's because they're going to expose ideas that there are weaknesses in our own argument. And we often research a topic. When somebody says, and we go like, oh, that must be wrong, and we go and find out about it. We become more informed by engaging in the public debate process. And that's, that's good, that's healthy. But these are people who fundamentally don't believe in free thought, free expression, and free speech. Fundamentally, they believe that you should have the right thought, not that you should have free thought. You should have the right expression, not that you should have free expression. They have combined sort of the inquisitional Catholic Church with like 1920s communists. Huh. And they've integrated the two in their approach, and they're using our legal system and using our political system and their superior power in the cultural uh, areas of influence, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's big media, whether it's big tech, to suppress and oppress those people who have different or dissident views than them, including people on parts of the left. So, I mean, people like Tim Pool is being called a Nazi right. just because he appears on Joe Rogan and asks a few questions on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, this is insanity. So, uh, that's actually, I was going to go somewhere else, but let's jump there for a second. So, like, for example, when I had Tim Pool on last week, there were verified people on Twitter calling Tim a Nazi and me a fascist or me a Nazi and Tim a fascist. I, I've mentioned this before. I've had a, uh, I, I grew up around Holocaust survivors. I lost family on, mm-hmm. on both my mom and my dad's side. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I'm the free speech guy, so I don't want to sue these people. Mm-hmm. But is there some legal remedy f- for this? I, if I was someone different than I am? Correct. Yeah, there is. Because, for example, uh, I took a couple of years ago the Cassandra Fairbanks case against Emma Roller. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, I, one of the reasons I took it is... I Cassandra, to, former lefty, by the way. Absolutely. She's, she's now all Trump, but former lefty. I Correct. had drinks with her one night. She gave me her full-on lefty, 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 lefty. Yeah. Exactly. Part Puerto Rican. Yeah. And she was accused by Emma Roller of flashing a white power gesture. And this was the universal yeah. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Somehow this became a white power. And I was like, what the? So, and so she was on Twitter and she's like, I got to stop this. Can somebody help me? And I said, I'll, I'll help for free because I like the area of the case and thought needed to stop this because they're used to being able to say, I'll call someone a Nazi, I'll call someone a racist, and that's not actionable at law. And I wanted to change that. I wanted to say, when you make very specific statements about someone's belief structure that someone can interpret and a jury can objectively verify as either true or false, that I think that should be uh, something you can sue over. So I brought the case in D.C., and we couldn't meet the actual malice standard, but the court said yes. Saying someone is a racist in a particular way, like saying it's a white power gesture, you can be sued for in the United States for libel and lies, and under the defamation laws of D.C., which are more restrictive than a lot of other laws. So that's established the standards that all these people think, I can just say anything and never get sued. That's what we're going to make the point in the Covington case. No, you can't. Yeah. If you say things that you know not to be true, that a jury can look at and say, I can objectively verify this. We, the juries make determinations about whether someone is involved in a hate crime every day. They make uh, 
determinations whether someone has racially discriminatory animus or motivation every day. So if they're good, if someone's accusing you of being a racist, that should be actionable in law because a jury can make that determination as a matter of objective fact. And the Fairbanks case establishes precedent that you can, under certain circumstances, get legal remedy for that kind God, of thing. It, it will never cease to amaze me that the free speech crew are the people that have to do certain things through law. Exactly. Such, just to maintain free speech, which Precisely. it sounds so counterintuitive, but it's, yeah. it's so fascinating to me. So a couple times you've mentioned Fox. Hmm? I think there's something interesting happening here. Now, has CNN or MSNBC ever put you on? No. Have they ever asked you to come on? CNN did way back about two years ago. Okay, so CNN did two years ago. MSNBC has not. Fox puts you on. Correct. Um, now, Fox only puts me on. Mm -hmm. And they put me on with no, I go on live shows. They don't tell me to say anything. Right. I yeah. can say whatever the hell I want. Yeah, I thing. often bring up liberal cred while, I'm, while I'm on there. Yep. Uh, but it seems also clear to me that partly what's going on with the Tucker thing is that they are really going for Fox. They're, the plan is, all right, we'll take out Tucker, he's sort of the bravest or the most outspoken or whatever it is, but really then we'll make this about going for Fox's licensing and broadcast abilities and, and everything else. Exactly. You're nodding, so I suspect you agree with me, but I, I, I'm amazed because it's like there is so much lefty media and you never saw the right trying to destroy all the lefty media. There's right. basically one Fox. And exactly. it doesn't mean I love everything they're doing, I don't. But you if, need some counterbalance, don't you? Absolutely. If, if you have the approach of the inquisitional Catholic Church or institutional communism uh, of a statist variety, then what, what drives you crazy is the heresy. So you don't look at it and say, geez, how many fair balance expressions do we have on both sides? To the Inquisitional Catholic Church, there's only the Catholic Church perspective, and everybody else needs to be burned at the stake. For the statist communist, same dynamic. There's one state channel, there's no alternative state channel. There's no anti-state channel. So when you come at it from that perspective, what unites, say, Alex Jones, the Covington case, and Fox, is these are three institutions, and they represent different institutions, that are uh, giving an independent narrative. So when I was at Yale, we did a history project that was actually about why African-Americans and poor whites in the South were often treated or, or portrayed in very discriminatory ways in cultural medium between 1900 and 1970. And what you find is that historically those communities have alternative narratives. Their grandparents and parents tell stories different than, say, the civics book version they learn in third grade in public school. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, those groups were often shamed and censored and portrayed in a negative light so that the broader public audience wouldn't trust them to listen to them or, or react to them. So the same thing is here. Like, you look at the Covington kids. They represent private Catholic education. What is private Catholic education? It's one of the last institutions of independent thought compared to, say, all the public state schools and public institutions. So it drives them crazy that they represent this institution that they can't control their thoughts and mind of right. because they don't have access to that institution. And then you even saw in the midst of all this, I'm sure you saw this, there was that guy from the New York Times who said, I want to know your stories. Remember, I forget what the hashtag he used was, but he wanted to know your, your Catholic, it was like hashtag Catholic school stories. Precisely. Because let's now New York Times, let's go after them once we're done with this exactly. thing. So, let's go after the whole Catholic Church. Let's go after the uh, Catholic schools because we need people to be afraid to be a part of those schools, to be ashamed if they're connected to those schools. Parents worried that if those schools are listed on their kids' CV, their kids' futures will be impaired. And not have these schools being independent sources of thought outside of the sort of cultural liberal uh, uh, hegemonic view. And the same thing is true, like Alex Jones represents sort of an independent part of the press. Fox News represents an, an institutional part of the press that's independent, that expresses its own perspective, that's not part of the left majority. I mean, CNN and MSNBC and ABC and NBC and CBS, even though they're using public airwaves, 
are overwhelmingly on one side. Yeah. Same with PBS, same with NPR. And I, there's a lot of good value, and I, I watch all of them at different times or listen to them at different times. But I want the other side expressed. And so what, it's, it's this fear of free expression, this fear of free speech that's leading to these censorship campaigns, these shame campaigns, these targeting campaigns, these privacy invasion campaigns. What I've told people is if you're ever to the point where you're attacking a person or trying to shame a person, trying to censor a person, trying to invade their privacy, then what you're really looking, you're doing is you're looking in the mirror and telling yourself, I've failed on the argument. Yeah. I can't persuade on ideas. No audience would actually believe my ideas. So it's an admission of, of failure. And they're really resorting to these extreme tactics because they're recognizing they're losing in the public debate. Do you think part of it also is that it's intentional not, now perhaps they're losing in the public debate. I think that's probably you could debate that either way. Sure. On one hand, I'm very enthused about sort of mm -hmm. where we're at in this. On the other hand, it's very scary too because you, you see this socialist, whatever the hell that is, oh, thing yes. rising. So, but putting that aside, do you think part of it is that they're in doing it intentionally because they just want to basically uh, sow chaos all over the place? That partly what they need for whatever their political goals are, is they need this system that has been pretty freaking spectacular for 200 plus years to appear chaotic. So right. they, so they, what do they do? They sow chaos. It's very, what's amazing is how parallel it is the 1920 street violence in Europe. So you see like a lot of the communist tactics that were used back then and the fascist tactics that were used back then was in, well, were designed to sow distrust in the system. So distrust in the institutions. Man, that's that it. Protected people. That's it. Every day now, AOC doing another thing about how evil we are and Reagan's evil and exactly. capitalism, to get people to hate and Omar, yeah. I think what, like the combination you're talking about where there's these bad ideas that are spreading and yet winning in the public debate, what unites them is if both sides get presented, most people will take a humanitarian decision or make a good choice based on their common experience and their common sense. Whereas, and so that's why this side that wants to spread their ideas knows they can't allow that open, fair debate to happen or those institutions to be trusted and protected and yeah. respected. If they, can de, uh, if they can get people to no longer, uh, to not listen, to not hear independent voices, to be afraid to be a part of independent institutions, to feel ashamed if they're connected to it, to say, hey, if I'm a lawyer, I represent this person, I'm going to be attacked. If I'm, if I'm in, the, in the public arena and I voice an independent view, I'm going to be targeted and harassed and stalked and, and the rest. They want people to be scared and intimidated to express their ideas because I think they know that in, an, in a non-chaotic, open debate structure, they don't win. And I think that's what they're wrecking, because otherwise you don't have to resort to these ridiculous tactics and techniques. If, if your ideas are great and popular, you don't have to use chaotic techniques. You don't, have to, uh, you don't have to try to censor people. You don't have to attack people. You don't have to say, what did Tucker say 20 years ago on a, on a shock jock show? You can say, hey, I disagree with what he said yesterday on Fox, and I'm willing to debate him. And Tucker's one of the few people who says, hey, you can come on the show and we'll debate it. <laughs> that's quite literally what his statement said. If, exactly. you, if you don't like my ideas, let, let's talk about it. Exactly. All right, so I want to ask you something that I think will sort of thread the, oh, you know what, I want to ask you one other little tech thing and then, and then something sure. that I think that'll kind of bring us full circle here. So one of the things is, you know, you see me do this all the time where I have to publicly shame uh, YouTube into either monetizing my video or making sure people aren't being unsubscribed or the rest of it. And then, right. then a certain amount of people will say, but Dave, you're a, you're a libertarian or whatever. You're not allowed to complain because you don't want the government involved, which is so idiotic because of course yes. I'm using my voice as a citizen. That's what you're supposed to do. Exactly. Okay, putting that aside. Um, do you think there is some interesting legal mechanism if it was to be found out 
that they were treating traffic differently. So that's a little bit different than what we talked about earlier was talking about content specifically. So you're saying this or that, right. but what if they're actually turning the screws just based on uh, not something you said, but they have a general a sort of a broad sense that they don't want certain ideas getting out there? I think there are contractual principles, equitable principles, and consumer protection principles that are in play. So once you induce someone to participate in your platform, and then you monetize their participation, to me, you have contractual obligations, uh, equitable obligations. You can't have unjust enrichment. So you say, hey, if you participate, we, these are the rules. And if, as long as you abide by those rules, we'll make sure you share in the profits, for example, of monetizing your individual video. And if they don't do that, if they manipulate the algorithm, they misrepresent facts, they induce conduct and then only keep the profit for themselves or use it for a politicized purpose that's different than what they said, those are all consumer protection violations, equitable law violations, and legal violations. Sometimes recommend, uh, remedied by statute, sometimes remedied by common law. Well, there's no reason for big tech to be above the law. Right, there, there might also be some legal thing related to their own board, right? I mean, if they're doing things that are not related, well, if they're not doing the most profitable thing, their board, may, I don't know exactly correct. what the law is. All the shareholders can take action. So there yeah. could be uh, uh, derivative suits by shareholders, they could go the board, but they could also bring derivative legal claims against the uh, institution saying they're not promoting the best profit, they're creating undue legal risk and liability, they're not behaving in a manner consistent with their professional obligations and their contractual obligations to their, their own investors. And so they can also bring action. And in fact, the left, what I've told a lot of people is look at what the left has done between the 70s and 2000. You'll see a lot of legal roadmaps for how to go at what they're doing now. Hmm. So they were some of the, you know, the, uh, on the apartheid campaign in South Africa. They targeted b different people using shareholder suits, using shareholder claims, using shareholder complaints to remedy that of people who are profiting from the apartheid system in South Africa. Hmm. Why can't we do the same thing now based on the same legal theories, same factual predicates as, the, as what's taking place here, which is inconsistent with their obligations and promises to people? I guess partly, and this brings me to the, to the last question, it's partly about bravery. You need citizens who are brave enough, you need yes. lawyers who are brave enough, yes. and they've created a system where everyone is afraid because the when I go out speaking to college campuses or even I do Q&A when I'm doing stand-up or wherever I go the question I get more than anything else is I'm afraid to say what I think and what should I do and it's usually students that are saying I want to get a grade because I want to get out I want to get to grad school or whatever yep. and I always think it's like man if everyone's thinking this if we all just stopped if we all just stopped acquiescing to it we could actually change this thing like that so my question to you is you, and you mentioned your father before, but why, why are you willing to do this? Why are you willing to put your ass on the line? Where does this come from in you? So it's two things. One, it's, it's growing up. So grew up poor in the South, got a scholarship to private school, scholarship to Yale. When I was at Yale, they tried to get rid of poor students who were there, led a protest by leaving Yale in order to get them to reinstate their policies. And I saw there, I was like, I'm one kid, I'm 19 years old, I'm challenging all of Yale University which wasn't exactly a small institution. <laughs> and just by leaving the school and getting public attention for it, I got them to reverse their policies and protect poor students' same access that I had to uh, rights to full financial aid, rights to be treated the, in a non-discriminatory manner in the application process. So as a, at a young age, I learned one person can change the world. When I was a real little kid, I loved uh, Medgar Evers. And Medgar Evers had this great quote where they asked him why he wasn't afraid to die. And he said, most men die a thousand deaths every day. I'm only gonna die once. 
And as a little kid, I was like, I want to be Meg Rivers. It's like, that is so powerful. That is so important. That is so influential. And you realize one person can make a difference. And when you realize one person can make a difference, if they know it here and act on it here, then you realize that, that that's the power. That's the passion. That's what leads you to want to change the world, not be afraid of. I, I've had rogue agents threaten me. Uh, IRS people put me under audit every other year whenever I win a case. I've had rogue judges threaten me. I've had people say that they're going to try to put me under bogus criminal investigation. I've had every smear campaign known to man. I've had bomb threats come in because of my Covington case representation. None of it concerns me because if you understand that you really have the power as one person to make a real difference in the world, then other people will start to recognize that and they'll act on their power. They'll voice their, their abilities. They'll use their capabilities to make a meaningful difference. And that's how the world changes. And that's how the world becomes a better place. That is how you end an interview. <laughs> Can we smoke one of those cigars you brought sure. here? All right. <laughs> We're done here. Follow Robert. I have a feeling you'll be back here. Yeah. I have a feeling it's going to happen. Uh, on Twitter, at Barnes underscore law.